Hello, I'm Eric Meyer. I'm a developer advocate here at Agalia. And I'm Brian Cardell. I'm also a developer advocate here at Agalia. If you've uh, listened to past Agalia chats, or if you know anything about me or Brian, you know that we uh, we like CSS. CSS is pretty cool. Um, lets you do a lot of really nifty stuff with the web platform, or sometimes uh, not on what we think of as the web platform. CSS is in a lot of places you might not expect it. So we like to uh, we like to talk about CSS, and so we have a guest today, uh, Roma Komarov. Yes, uh, hello, my name is Roma. Uh, but the day job, I'm a senior front end engineer at Datadog, uh, working on its design system. However, I spend most of my free time playing with CSS, doing experiments, and sometimes writing about them. Yeah, on a really really nicely designed blog and website in general. And you also give talks, don't you? I, I gave a few lighting talks. I think I usually gave like larger talks back uh, in Russia, but in English, I think I gave only four lightning talks, uh, two at Frontiers Jam Sessions in like 2012, 13, and then two at .css. I don't remember. I think one was right before COVID and one I think maybe a year before. How did you get started with coding in general? What was sort of your, your journey to CSS, as it were? I started with programming back in school. We had like in sixth, seventh grade basic lessons. Mm -hmm. uh, so we learned how to draw shapes there. And that's basically it. And I think I remember the teacher showing us how sprites are done in games. I think there was like some suit where you could see them drawn and then stuff like that. But... Uh, I think late in the later grade, there was a uh, summer school where I did participate kind of in a project where we did burn CDs with photos from the same summer school. And I basically worked on like a content management a bit, uh, adding them and modifying HTML for the gallery. So that was like 2001, maybe. Right after that, maybe a few months later, like I created my first page for myself. Yeah, from that it started. Where was that page hosted? Do you remember? Uh, I think some uh, like third level domain at some uh, random free hosting. Changed it a few times, I think. So you said that you spend a lot of your free time experimenting with CSS. I saw uh, your Frontiers talk from 2013 where you explain some of those and another one or two that you've done too. I thought it was really interesting because of not just the thing that you did, but also your explanation of like, what does it mean to do experiments? Like what is the point and, and what should you not do and everything? I, I just thought you explained that really well in each of them. And I wanted to know if you could maybe explain what are your experiments that you do, like, give me some idea about what that means. There's lots of experiments, I suppose. And also still feel the same way that you felt in those about like the purpose, why you would do them. I think I still think a lot of things that I said then it was, if I remember correct, one of the ideas is that, okay, don't look into the source, like this thing that we actually have and that, that is very useful an ability to look into the source of our pages, like any examples and articles and dig deep into them. Uh, for me, it was interesting to solve problems and uh, just to see if I can do something without actually looking how it was done before. 
And it was like two extremes where uh, I could see a title of a post and not even open it and just imagine what could that post talk about and then just try to implement it. And at the same time, just if I had some idea, I usually write it down somewhere and maybe try to implement it later. So for me, experimenting is just yeah, solving problems and sometimes just playing with things. Like when you're reading some specs, looking at things that are written and imagining, okay, how would this actually work in practice? How would this interact with some other properties in CSS or with some layouts in HTML? And then you go and try it and see the result. And sometimes you find interesting things that maybe you did not see before. That interests me that you, that you, that you say some of the experiments come from looking at a title and saying, I'm not going to read it. I want to see if I can figure out for myself how you would do that. Do you then go back to the article and see if you came up with the same solution? Uh, usually, yes. Uh, it's interesting to see what the author did actually meant. And sometimes I find that I actually solved like some different problem and maybe overcomplicated things or maybe found something new. And in the end, I could get like two solutions because I get one question that the author did ask and then another that I imagined they did mm. ask. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it can be useful to just see how things compare, what the approach was f- for the author and uh, to see what I know and uh, maybe dig deeper into some of the aspects that I did not n- know I had to dig. One, one of the things that I really liked about the talk that I saw was it, you made, I think, a Go board, you, like you made a whole Go game that had uh, no JavaScript, right? Yep. And you said like, look, this has like accessibility problems and it's overly complicated and you should not do this in production. But also I learned a really lot by doing this. And it's also really cool to learn those sorts of things, what is possible. And then, you know, later on, you'll have a mass of knowledge. And when you have to do something in production, you can draw on that knowledge and deep understanding. Uh, I thought that was really great way to frame it because I I agree with you. It is super cool that you can do that. (laughs) But I also agree that, yeah, you probably shouldn't do exactly that. And I I think it's a great way to present it and also a very responsible way to do it. Yeah, I would say that uh, a lot of my experiments go usually in ways that, yeah, you don't want to use them in production. And that's like one of the reasons why I often don't provide like tutorials how to recreate this experiment. You might look into the source and see how I did it, but often I would, in my articles, present some snippets of how things, like particular interactions between properties work to just demonstrate some idea or some way to solve a problem or like work around some problem. But often these are more of, is it even possible in any way and not necessarily a good way? Like one of the things that we can think about, like I cannot draw at all, but I really like sometimes look at things people do like in a single div. Uh, for example, whole last month, uh, we had a lot of examples of that. Starting like from Lynn, who often does really great things. And Lynn Fisher. Yeah. Yeah. When you learn to do something like this, you have to learn like, the edges of what is possible and then you can apply it but this thing itself like usually 
for a drawing, you would probably use SVG or just PNG or any of the new formats. If you want to have an image, usually SVG, if you want to control some aspects of it, like animate things or change colors based on something. Uh, but you would not use this one div as something that you would use in production. However, sometimes if it's a very small thing, it might be very useful to just use CSS, like if you want a square or if you want a circle or if you want like a tick box. Instead of SVG, you could use a much smaller subset of CSS. And when doing more complicated things, much simpler things go much easier. Yeah, I've used, uh, I would say, similar techniques to the uh, single div type design for um, things like separators. One of my preferred tricks is that if I want a separator in a page, like in a blog post, I'll put in a horizontal rule, right? Because that's what you use for a separator, but I'll style the heck out of it by making it an M tall and then putting in a bunch of backgrounds. And if you you know know how to use gradients of various types, which is how most a single div stuff is done, then you can make these sort of artistic separators that look much better than just a simple horizontal rule by layering up three or four linear and radial gradients that are constrained in some way. And then maybe you, you decide to also bring in an SVG and you use the those backgrounds to um, mask out parts of what you're doing. You know, that's the thing I use in production, those kinds of techniques. Like you say, I, I'm not trying to recreate company logos, <laughs> right? Using all these background gradients, even though you, you could most likely if you really worked at it. But in those cases, you're probably better off bringing in an SVG. But then, you know, if you want to have a circle behind it, you just put in a radial gradient in the background and you're done. So yeah, that, that sort of experimentation, I also find really, really useful. And it's, it's strange to me how uncommon it feels for people to do that, to just like mess around with stuff and see how far can I push this? What can I do here that would work in, in an interesting way? CSS battle, for as much as some of the rules do not appeal to me, so I don't play CSS battle, um, I think is is interesting for that. Uh, what is CSS battle? CSS battle is uh, a site where they will put up four images. And the challenge is you need to recreate them using only CSS. And you have, I think, a div. So it's basically a single div except gamified. And your score is dependent on how compactly you can do that. So the, the basically the fewer characters you have, the higher your score or the lower your score. I, I don't remember the scoring exactly, but... Do you get to use a preprocessor or...? You didn't when it started. Okay. I don't think so. Um, but because it's number of characters, like white space counts, which I, I object to a little bit, <laughs> which is why... I, why I don't play because I'm, I'm interested in trying to do these things elegantly and cleverly. I'm not interested in trying to minify them for this particular purpose. I was just wondering, Roma, if you have ever messed around with CSS Battle. Uh, yeah, I think a few years back, Tribes playing a bit. If I remember correctly, uh, they provide PNGs. And okay. if I remember correctly again, they are using like a reference implementation in, uh, I think, Chrome and then mm -hmm. make basically a screenshot of it, maybe automatically, and mm -hmm. then you have to recreate it. And this means that 
whenever whatever you write, the system behind it would make a screenshot again, I think in Chrome, a specific version of it. And that means that you can use whatever Chrome provides and uh, only need to think about it. Yeah. Yes, thank you. That's part of the scoring I forgot about. In addition to the how few characters can you do, there's also we'll render the code you input to an image and then we'll do an image diff on our reference image. So, I mean, it's it's interesting and I, and I had fun with it sort of privately, not as part of the competition. Like I wasn't trying to get on the leaderboards. I was just trying to think of what are ways I could do this that are compact and elegant. I personally don't, I don't think I like continued playing with it mostly because I don't really like to like optimize things that far. And some of the techniques that people did come up to optimizing things are like very Chrome specific, very something that you for sure would not use in production in any way. However, like, yeah, there are sometimes very clever things you could learn from uh, this very tight CSS where you can rely on the specifics of how CSS parser does things because you you can omit a lot of things. You can, uh, yeah, do a lot of, crimes against uh, any any style guide of writing CSS and then get a good result in the end. But yeah, I usually like to like implement a thing and then move away to the next one instead of spending a lot of time on uh, one, just one small thing. Could you sort of um, explain like what are some of your experiments? And also maybe a question that you can think about in relation to that is, are there any common threads, common building blocks, really important conceptual things that you learn along the way that wind up in just an awfully lot of experiments somehow? Yeah, I would say that like the common thread that I try to do is find something that is not possible in CSS uh, and then try to make it possible with any means. Sometimes it goes uh, into quite weird territories uh, and not often something that should be even ever used. For example, when playing with like HTML limitations and nesting a link inside a link, you for sure do, don't want to do this. But sometimes, uh, yeah, practicality, uh, need to find a way to do this uh, in like bigger companies when you implement some very complex UIs. And uh, it's not always accessible. And that's one of the issues. And the common thread is that it often goes into territory where it's not accessible, but it's something that is not possible to do in any other way. And I really like when it's something that was not possible before, but is now possible due to some weird interactions of new emergent properties. When it's just like decorative decorative stuff, it's possible to yeah go, just do it and maybe even use it in production with some graceful degradation. Like for example, Uh, The screw-driven animations, I think, provide a lot of ways to just enhance experience and make things be okay, like in stable Chrome and uh, Chromium-based browsers, but fall back to some more simple things in uh, other browsers. Yeah, you've been doing a lot with scroll-based animation recently. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that's, I mean, that's a pretty new thing. Uh, Yeah. Uh, interesting thing that initially when I saw like the scroll-driven animation specs, I did not think that uh, I would use them a lot and that I would find a lot of interesting things, mostly because 
whenever they were presented, they usually were shown as this way of implement some of the shiny promo page like animations when you scroll and things rotate and appear and disappear. However, uh, when I started like playing with them, the thing that I did realize is that the scroll-driven animations basically provide us a lot of information about both where an element is positioned inside its container uh, related to the scroll, some of the dimensions of an, an element related to the container, and what we get in the result is kind of like resize observer and intersection observer just with CSS. Knowing the dimensions of elements, knowing the positions of elements, allow us to do a lot of interesting effects that previously were impossible without involving some JavaScript. Like all the sticky elements, things like when an element becomes smaller when scrolling, we wanted, like developers wanted to have a stack pseudo class for sticky elements for quite a long time. And Chrome currently is experimenting with providing this as kind of state query. But what I'm thinking about, like scroll-driven animations actually is a much better fit for this because with just stack pseudo class, you have a binary state. The element is either stuck or not. With scroll-driven animations, we can adjust things more gradually based on the position, like how an element relates to an edge of a viewport. So in my experiments, in my first article about scroll-driven animations, I did implement header, which sticks to the top, but does this gradually resizing its content inside. And uh, yeah, this allows us to achieve the same effect already in stable Chrome. And uh, yeah, it's really nice. Uh, let me see if I understand this correctly. So instead of doing the thing where you have a sticky header, yeah. right, at the, or a fixed header, let's say, at the top of the page, and then as soon as it gets moved off the page, there's some JavaScript that like looks to see, are we at scroll position zero? And if we're not, then we're going to add a class to that fixed header. And then its height will change. And then with CSS, you can use transitions to make that sort of smoother. Instead, what you're doing is you're using scrolling to animations to basically do all of that. It, the CSS engine is doing the watching to see if there's been any scroll. And if there's been scroll, then depending on how far the scroll has gone, that header is actually resized. You're not using a transition. You're literally resizing it down as the scroll goes a little bit. So if you scroll just a little bit down, it gets a little bit smaller. And then if you go further, it gets smaller. And then at a certain point, it stops. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, correct. Wow. Yeah, with animation uh, ranges, uh, so for timeline ranges, we can control the span over the distance over which the this animation happens. So we could have its start value, the end value in the keyframes, and then uh, we can choose where this would happen. So in this example, I'm using a viewport, or I think in, it's actually like container height uh, or con like block container unit mm -hmm. to get the element like outside of viewport. It's kind of complicated to explain in words, right. uh, but uh, like the timeline range by itself allows us to hook things when element is scrolled into views, like from the bottom of the screen, or when it uh, exits the screen from the top. And in this case, it's Exiting, but in reverse. When we scroll, an element appears as if 
it was exiting, but it's actually appearing. It's kind of, yeah, it's a bit complicated <laughs> to explain, but I'm actually all the view timelines ranges is really complicated for me to understand. I think Brahmus has a good tool to visualize this, but even then, I think even with all my experiments, I still sometimes struggle to really work through what should I use and when should I use something. So I'm really hoping that one day we would have a proper support for scroll-driven animations in DevTools. Brahmus also working on like an extension for this, but I did test it and there were are a lot of limitations to what an extension can do because not everything is provided for us. For example, mm-hmm. when we have scroll animation on pseudo-elements, uh, we cannot really get the information about the pseudo-elements in JavaScript uh, reliably. So yeah, there are a lot of cases where a Brahmos extension does not work, but uh, it still helps a lot in various other cases. Wow, I can imagine that you can do something similar with the page footer <laughs> um, as you scroll down to the very bottom on pages that have footers, which should be all of them, but that's another discussion. Like it gets bigger. Yeah. Or sort of a focus mode where the elements that are closest to the center of the viewport have full opacity and the ones towards the edges fade down to, like, say, half opacity. Yeah, that's very easy to do. Like one of the problem main usages, and it's, yeah, it's just. Uh... Wow. Just a few lines and uh, you get this. So this obviously sounds like really good feedback into standards. And I know that you do um, open issues and comment on issues in the CSS working group drafts. Um, Another area that I think you're interested in is anchor positioning. Yes, yes. Uh, I think maybe uh, with anchor positioning, like I returned to doing a lot of experiments. Like before that, I did not do a lot of them for a few years, but uh, like anchor positioning really provides a lot of interesting ways uh, we could do things that we couldn't do ever before, just because like like absolute positioning is something that before you position element, absolutely, it does not know about anything around it. You only provide some coordinates to it, and that's it. With anchor positioning, we get this ability to hook into the positions of other elements, including other absolutely positioned elements, if we want to. And some of the things that are possible are really nice because we can similar to scroll-driven animations, measure some of the things because we can uh, take positions of different elements, use calculations, mean max, and uh, just have a sum or negation to compare values of different anchors and then do things correspondingly. There's so many things that I want to try doing with anchor positioning, but I'm currently not stopped experimenting with it, but like delayed a bit because I'm waiting for the specification to like not finalize, but be more stable. Apple provided a lot of feedback and provided their own exploration of how they see anchor positioning. And it's very different from what was implemented and specced currently in Chrome. However, I think like the I would like to see both of them. Apple, for example, provides an ability to use grid-like syntax to say like this element should be positioned at the start end of this element. And this can be very 
good way of defining things without actually getting into the nitty-gritty of uh, like inset uh, block uh, start and all of that and using anchor to get coordinates but at the same time i would like to see both and have this ability to say inset uh, block start anchor name it anchor and then calculation and then something else because yeah i would like to have an easy way to do easy thing- things but then have a more complex way of doing more complex things i've looked through apple's proposal and yeah it does do a lot of very interesting things the one thing that it apparently doesn't do um, that is a use case near and dear to my heart is you can't really position an anchored thing with relation to the previous anchored thing. When I looked at it, there was no way to sort of say, if I'm an image that's being anchor positioned out into the right gutter, I need to be positioned below any previous image that has been positioned in the same way so that we don't overlap. Yes, I think it uh, has like a few differences for this. I think in their original exploration, they did mention that, okay, if we are mentioning different elements with the same name, we choose the first one. And that was actually the way it was working in Chrome in the first implementation and spec they did, uh, after which I gave wrote my article and gave some feedback and they did change it. So now the case that uh, you also wrote an article about the side notes, uh, it's possible just because of that. Uh, I think some, there were some other limitations, like you cannot use multiple anchors. I think in their proposals, they only did talk about when we have a single element, a single positioning context, and uh, a single power element. That's why I would want to have both proposals combined, uh, because like in Apple, there was also a good way to define tether pseudo element, which can mm. could be often used as like an arrow for a popover, and which would be automatically positioned between the anchored element and the anchored target. There are a lot of things that can go wrong with it. I did play with what we have now in Chrome to kind of emulate what would happen with the new proposal. And uh, it's really powerful, but yeah, I'm just waiting when it would all be finalized so I could play with it more. Uh, one of the things that uh, Brian and I were talking about is that in some of your old talks, you talked about the subject selector, and then there was no subject selector for a really long time, and now suddenly we do. Yeah, I I, uh, I noticed that in your Frontiers talk, I was surprised to see that you had something using the subject selector. So the subject selector first appeared uh, in 1999 uh, in a spec. In CSS, the subject, the thing that you're writing a rule about, is always the last thing. So if you have a complex or compound selector, it's always the thing most to the right. The next obvious question is, but how do you make it about the thing that's over further to the left? (laughs) And you couldn't. And the answer to that was proposed to be colon subject. And then for a lot of years, very quickly, we got to has, has pseudo class, basically the thing that we have now. But it was very complex uh, implementation wise. And there were big worries about performance because especially at the time, even regular CSS, we had lots of worries about performance. For a little while, I was really pushing a lot. In fact, the thing that got me named to the CSS working group in the first place on behalf of the jQuery Foundation was, you know, pushing on some of these things that jQuery had, including has, 
because I was sort of pushing on it a lot, there was a renewed discussion and uh, someone, I believe it was Elika, suggested that we switch back to the subject idea because it would be easier to implement and that we make it a bang, an exclamation point before the thing that you wanted to be the subject, which I always felt very, very unintuitive myself, but also I thought it was less powerful. But somehow in your demos, you had the bang version. And I, what, who implemented that? That's really surprising to me that there was a prototype I didn't even know about. Uh, the key for this is that it looked like it worked. Uh, in reality, I don't think anyone ever implemented it. Okay. It was like one of the things that I like to do is like, okay, here are these things proposed. Here are these things that developers want to do. Uh, how could it look like if I would to implement it with what we have now? I think in this case, what actually was happening did show two examples. One in which there's a list of items and we hover over an item and we highlight the one that goes before it and one that goes after it. Highlighting the one that goes after it is possible with just regular CSS, but highlighting the one that goes before it, you might think that, yeah, we need a subject selector or has. Uh, what I did is kind of did cheat around it by placing two sets of elements. One is for interactions, one for their like visual representations. One goes after another. And that means if we know the number of elements, we could make a selector like using the next sibling selector, like plus, 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 and highlight the element with, that goes like the after it after a while. So in this case, like let's say we have five elements. We'll place five elements, then place five more elements, and then get a selectors like uh, an element hover plus five any other elements and the next one. That would be the element that shows next to what we want to show. And this way, we only use the next sibling selector and make it look like we actually hover in a different element. And like this is possible because we know the count of elements. And like yeah, this is limitations. And we also don't get all the positioning that we could do, but still we kind of can fake it, can look at how it could look like. And I think I even did use something like that in production in a few places where you can separate like the visual representation of some element from it and place it further into the tree and then just fake this by only using what we have now. I, I was really fascinated because I, I, I don't even run into people who are generally familiar that there was a bang version proposed, you know, because it was very brief period of history, like months or maybe, maybe not even that. I don't know. But I'm curious now in retrospect, like, because you, you, you knew that existed, like now that we have has, do you wish that had been the bang or are you happy with has? Um, I think I'm happy with has, uh, mostly because, yeah, we can use multiples of them and it becomes a bit more powerful. And just one symbol as a bang, I don't think it's as noticeable as like has. I imagine like syntax highlighting could help with it, but it also would help with has. You could show it in a slightly different way if you want. And yeah, I'm very happy that has is finally shipping. We got like yesterday news that uh, Firefox has an intent to ship it. It was also nice that uh, Nicolas Chabot, I think, the developer of Mozilla Developer Tools in Firefox, he said that they did implement a very nice feature where they show if a has selector is unbounded. 
unrestrained, which means that it might be bad for performance. Because, yeah, mm-hmm. one of the reasons we did not have has is because it could potentially lead to performance issues. And if you are placing it without any actual context, like you have space combinator before has, and do not add any class names or element names to what you are selecting with has, it would mean that it would try to select for every element on a page, go inside of it to the depth uh, of every element inside, and would try to find what you're looking for. So we actually had, like in production, some people started using has in some product, and we have very big tables with thousands of rows. There could be multiple of tables like that. And at some point, it became a bit slow. And one of the reasons was because, yeah, uh, selectors can be slow, and has selector produces a lot of overhead for this. So we did introduce a styling rule in our code base that prevents this unrestrained has. And I was very happy to see it yesterday that yeah, developer tools and browsers would actually kind of prevent this as well. And I wish like developer tools would provide a lot more feedback than they do now. And I'm really happy that there are cases like this where we actually get more details about things in CSS. Just very nice. Yeah, we've gotten kind of a lot of really cool things in in CSS in the past few years, I think. What is something that you see coming up now? Is there something beyond, I guess, while you said anchor positioning? uh, Is there anything else that you're kind of anxiously waiting to land? Um, I really hope we would get an ability to like divide and lose a unit uh, or like strip units from uh, values. Basically, yeah, for example, when you have some length in CSS, like 100 pixels, and then you have like one EM, very often what you want to do is to divide 100 pixels by one EM and get a proportion of what is the the proportion between these two values, the ratio. Now we can't. We cannot divide things like that in CSS. However, just recently, Jane Ori did write an article about how we can kind of do this with some trigonometric functions like tan, atan, two, and then provide values and then basically calculate that because we can calculate kind of a degree between two sides of a triangle and then get the ratio from this degree. And by this, we can get our value. I think it almost works in most browsers. I don't remember what was the state the last time I saw it. I think it like required a lot of things around it because there were bugs in how this ATAN2 function was implemented. But it also is not uh, applicable everywhere. And uh, I remember playing with it and I crashed Chrome stable. So yeah, I had to report about it. <laughs> so I would really like to see this as a feature because it would open so many things. And yeah, there are so many things in CSS that I would like to see. Uh, yeah, too many. <laughs> to your point about like experimenting with things that CSS can't do or that you think it can't do. And also to this point you're saying now where like it, it is possible probably, but it's like a lot of like complex math functions or something. It'd be nice if there was like a easier way to do that. I wonder like... Again, one of the reasons that I got into CSS is I would like to also make CSS extensible so that we can do things like that. So there's a proposal for custom functions, and it would allow somebody who had those extreme skills to just provide a function that other people could use. 
maybe for two or three people to provide some variants and then for us to see which ones people use and understand. And then it seems like it would be pretty easy to standardize version of that. Do you think that that would be helpful or is that a, in your opinion, a good idea or a bad idea or? Yeah, I think you're talking about like some of the Goudini API stuff. I remember seeing some of the experiments when it was implemented in, uh, I think, in Chrome. I think it was like from Vincent de Alveira. Yes, Vincent de Alveira. He did a lot of experiments with like CSS Goudini and Paint API and doing very wild things. For me, it's... Yes. I I was just going to clarify. So, so yes, it is potentially related spiritually to Houdini. I mean, it should technically be a part of Houdini, except that Houdini is really just a task force that's supposed to be focused on a specific thing. And also a lot of those things are things that the CSS working group also is just focused on. There's a lot of overlap between those two. So the CSS custom functions, there are a, a few different proposals for that, like actively, and they're not under a Houdini umbrella, but um, they're just part of the CSS working group. Although I agree. It, Technically, you would call that Houdini. Um, the reason I'm not is because most of the work on Houdini has been focused on things that I think are kind of low value targets, <laughs> like paint. I, I love that you can do paint. Like, don't get me wrong. I just don't think it's the thing that anybody really cared about or had a lot of uses for practically. Whereas I think the ability to make custom selectors, custom functions, you know, things like that would open whole new doors. Uh, the properties and values API even. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I now understand what you're talking about. We had recently a proposal, like exploration from Miriam Suzanne about mixins and custom functions. Yes, uh, I would really h- happy to see anything uh, of that regard in CSS. We have a lot of need to do some more complicated things and mixins and things like that would be really nice to have. Because it's not even like the case of doing what preprocessors do, which provides some ways to abstract something into reusable code. But with CSS, especially with custom properties, there are a lot of things you would want to do dynamically, not as like just substitution. Uh, the last thing that I was looking at, uh, I think Lea Viru recently did an experiment and uh, showed a code pen where we could actually now use Color Mix to kind of achieve the relative color syntax by modifying some of the only some of the components of colors. However, the syntax for this is a bit like verbose. You have to write a lot of boilerplate each time you want to modify a color. And a custom mixing or a function in CSS that would output that would be so very useful. I think we could kind of work around this with the current way to do mixins in CSS is when you have a star selector and assign some CSS variables there. So whenever you assign a variable, all of them are recalculated. Like every variable that is dependent on this other variable is recalculated on this element. And I think it was also Leaviru who did write about it the first time I saw it. And this is kind of a way we can do mixins now, but it's very cumbersome. You cannot do multiple calls on the same element for the same mixing, as we can say it. We need to duplicate it and have different like instances duplicating all the CSS variables which are involved in it. So yeah, uh, having mixings as something native would be very, very, very nice. 
And I remember like a few years ago, I was feeling very depressed because we did not get any things in CSS happening. We did not have has, we did not have container queries. And very often requests for features like that in CSS working group were met with, we probably could not do this because of cyclic dependencies. But at some point, it was really nice that we finally got out of that thing where we finally understood that, okay, we can provide some restrictions like with container queries, or I think there were some restrictions initially with has, and then actually get the thing, maybe not working at 100% of what we could imagine it could be doing, but still working and covering a lot of use cases. And with that, I really wish and want Nixins to actually take some form and be available for us. Because yeah, it would allow us to write so many abstractions, so many things much in a much more compact way, much more powerful way and share some of the like, CSS snippets techniques, uh, like setting up your CSS grids and whatever with like templates and variables in a much more concise way where you could just import some of your mixins, throw down their code in your element and then get everything and do it dynamically based on some state, reusing CSS variables set on like parents through inheritance. Yeah, there are so many things that could be possible with mixins. Uh, I feel like that ability that you described to make things more compact is secondary to the second thing you described as being able to like distribute and share that somehow. <laughs> I think that would be really key uh, to have a completely portable way to share some relatively complex function that would be out of the capabilities of someone like me, for example, to implement that. But for me to say, yes, that is exactly what I want to do. And yes, I have that information. <laughs> Let me give it to you. And then you can give me back the thing that I need. I think that would be really awesome. And I think the closest thing that we have to that today is preprocessors that have some ability to have like plugins and things. Uh, yes, and I think uh, another thing I was experimenting with slightly and would continue experimenting is how we can use custom elements, web components with CSS this way, maybe using them for polyfilling some of the techniques because we can have custom element which would come with some CSS, more complex CSS inside. Then we could, if something is not supported, provide an implementation in JavaScript for just that specific thing. And uh, it would just work for browsers which support something and would be using JavaScript for when it's not supported. It's kind of like lightweight polyfills. Uh, the only thing like that currently is not very convenient is that in custom elements, we have Shadow DOM, we have Light DOM. We can provide built-in styles in Shadow DOM, but we cannot really ship light DOM styles with the custom element uh, as it is. Uh, and I find like this limitation slightly frustrating because I very often want to have all the possibilities that custom element can have, but without actually using Shadow DOM. However, like maybe some of the possibilities that Shadow DOM provides can be helpful, like because we can still provide styles with it. And the CSS variables, the best thing that they pierce the Shadow DOM if we have an element, we do something in Shadow DOM and put result as a CSS variable on it, then this variable is available for element nested in it. And I think that there is a lot of things and possibilities like in this area, combining CSS variables, Shadow DOM, 
maybe light dome and custom elements and doing polyfills with JavaScript in them and uh, mixins would help with it. But for now, I'm really waiting for like more shadow dome improvements. For example, declarative custom elements would be really nice. Uh, because for now, we still have to use JavaScript to re register them. And uh, it would be really nice if we could have some way to just provide, okay, this here is an element, here is some built-in styles. We want to use it without JavaScript. And yeah. Boy, I have like so many thoughts on the thing that you were just saying. Uh, I'm writing all of them down in a blog post that um, I've been trying to write for, I don't know, six months. So maybe I'll get around to getting that finished so that I can share them instead of taking a whole bunch of time here after we're already so far into this. But um, I, yeah, I agree with you that um, Shadow Dom is very almost <laughs> like it, it's there's so many good qualities to it and also so many things that are just in the way and kind of frustrating. And it feels like we're missing a, a thing there. But I, I like I like your idea of of using those today. Yeah, very waiting for this article. <laughs> I would be happy to read it. So we've talked a lot about the cool stuff in CSS and cool stuff that's coming. What's your favorite thing that CSS is just now or is just about to start getting? Uh, so many things. It's hard to choose one. <laughs> uh, it's really hard to choose. And also, like for example, I really like what we can do with scroll driven animations. But at the same time, I'm slightly, I'm slightly anxious about it because, hmm. okay, for now we have a lot of things with scroll driven animations that work in Chrome. However, a lot of, especially a lot of experiments that I do are relying on a lot of other aspects of CSS and the fact that they work in some tandem together. For example, how CSS variables work in animations at all. And we have a lot of browser bugs already filled, for example, in Firefox, where we cannot use scroll-triggered animations using a CSS variable because Firefox just does not work with CSS variables in animations the same way. Uh, there are some other limitations. So even when Firefox would implement scroll-driven animations, it's not certain that all the techniques that I'm coming up with would work there. And like one case, which I'm really waiting for finally land uh, would be at property. However, it's like it's the same. There are a lot of things in at property which allow us to do a lot of very nice effects, like yeah, providing transitions in animations, providing fallbacks to initial values, and a lot of nuances that could potentially be lost when, uh, at least initially, when it was would be implemented in uh, Firefox. Hopefully, yeah, it would just be a case of filling bugs and waiting for them to be fixed. And it's really nice that we already have a lot of benchmarks of what uh, property can do by the already mentioned Jane Ori. Anna Tudor, I think, did a lot of experiments and uh, really cool animations using property and storing values as a uh, length. So yeah, it would be really nice to have it. So many CSS stuff that I would want to see, but the main issue is that when it would be interoperable and uh, how could we combine them when all of that would land in browsers. But yeah, I, I think it's mostly a question of time and patience and filling bugs. And uh, I just recently contributed my first test to web platform testing. Nice. Would be happy to try and doing this more. Yeah, more tests is good. 
I was going to ask you if you could, you know, wave your magic wand and add one thing to CSS, what would it be? I think the answer to that would be mix-ins based on what you were saying. Yeah, uh, mix-ins would be nice. However, like, because we already have this exploration from uh, Miriam, it's more likely that we would get it because a lot of other explorations from Miriam ended up uh, revolutionizing the way we write CSS. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So yeah, if I would think about something that we probably would not get, I really want to have a lot of things, but probably some magic stuff. I don't know, maybe some typography ability to just use a regular expression and select some text inside a paragraph and style it in some way. We probably would not really get it. I remember reading some issues related to this and there were some underlying issues which prevents us from doing this. Like mostly performance and an ability to very easily break a lot of things. We kind of get some of it with CSS highlights, which are not really CSS because you have to write a lot of JavaScript for them. But still, yeah, an ability to just select random, uh, not random, but predefined spans, like highlight things based on their content and not like position in a line. The issue with that, why I don't think we would get this, at least in this decade, I think, maybe in the next we would not get it either, is because we already have like Prost line, Prost letter, and they are kind of bad. We have so many issues with the way they work. We have like this uh, initial letter property, and it also is not completely interoperable. There are so many small issues uh, with them. And yeah, I just don't see this implemented, especially given how hard it to work with text, like with Unicode, with combined letters, uh, like emoji or non-Latin stuff. So yeah, it's just something that probably we would never get. But as someone who really likes like typography and stuff, yeah, this is something that I would, if I would have a magic wand, give me an ability to do a lot of good typography. This is really an interesting confluence of last questions and comments because I'm I'm really pleased of all the things that we've gotten in CSS and I'm also like really pleased that Egalia played a major role in getting almost all of them. And for me, when I when I came to Egalia, one of the things that I, I learned that is like the thing you were saying about like, well, there's so many things, right? There's just so many things. And you're asking me to pick one, but boy, it's hard because there's things in HTML and there's things in CSS and there's some things that are about, you know, typography and there's other things that are about, you know, the way that you write things and there's other things that are about your capabilities of what you can do. And, but every browser has to prioritize resources independently for the most part across all of those things. And so getting to the intersection of where they're finally <laughs> interoperably in all the browsers, because everyone has finally prioritized them and shipped them is like, boy, some three-dimensional chess is really not easy. If you had to pick one thing, what thing would it be? Yeah, there's like one thing, if it's one thing that could be nice to have. I was playing uh, a lot with multi-call, multi-column stuff. Mm. And one thing that we don't have and we can't really work around well is when we have columns and want them to wrap in a block direction. So we have like, we can say, okay, we want to have this multi-column layout. We want to have uh, a certain height of a column. 
But when it goes overflown and in the line direction, instead of that, like it is now just going further, we want them to wrap into the block direction. And uh, this prevents us from doing a lot of like typography based layouts that we could do otherwise. And uh, there was an article by Rachel Andrew in 2019, I think, where she talked a lot about various things that we do not have yet in CSS and we still do not have them. This one, one of them. Uh, some of the things that she talks about can kind of be worked around, maybe a bit, maybe I would write an article about it. But like this one thing could improve a lot of things in how we do it. And like multi-column layout in itself, I think very overlooked and there are a lot of things that can be uh, improved in it and for developers to use it. So uh, beyond all of the cool stuff we don't have, what do you see coming next for CSS and the use of CSS? Um, I think that with all the possibilities that we are getting with new foundational possibilities that we are getting, like layers, container queries, nesting, a lot of other stuff. CSS would become, at some point, at least complete enough to compete with a lot of the JavaScript solutions that currently exist in a way that people start treating CSS with like more respect and trying to find a solution in CSS because it would be able to provide a lot of solutions in a very good ways, like uh, with layers, with scopes, I hope we would get them, a lot of other things. Yeah, creating components would be much, much easier. And especially if we would also work uh, at the same time on improving things in HTML, for example, how OpenUI does good, great work, like having popover API, a lot of other things. And uh, I really like how they kind of interact with CSS, with Popover API having this extension of anchor positioning. Yeah, I think that a lot of patterns that people usually go to grab a library from NPM and just use it would be just solvable with CSS, maybe not in a few lines, but in the much more performant, accessible solutions. And CSS would become this standard library of things that you are using to implement your websites, your applications, and not using like outside JavaScript hacks. Yeah, that would be very cool. As the anchor positioning becomes more settled and maybe some of these other things, we'll have to have you come back on and you and Brian can talk about open UI work and CSS and how those two can work together and uh, synergize, as our friends in the corporate boardrooms would say. I mean, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate you coming on, Roma. Um, where can people find you on the internets? Uh, yeah, my website, uh, kizu.dev. And at my Mastodon, uh, Kizu, at Kizu at Frontend Social, uh, the instance in Mastodon by Miriam Suzanne. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of front-end developers there. So I would say, yeah, j go there and find people to follow outside of me as well. <laughs> right. So that's uh, K-I-Z-U dot dev. Yes. And then K-I-Z-U at Frontend dot social, I think it is. I think if people search for Roma Komarov, they should be able to find you uh, yeah. through on. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation and uh, look forward to more CSS experiments on your, on your beautiful blog. Yes. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Very nice to meet you, Roma. Same. <laughs>